toxic chemicals have contaminated the Huron River. But Representative Ryan Berman voted to cut millions from the state's cleanup fund. Berman's record is toxic. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate.
It's time for Nicole Sandler's What's News from NicoleSandler.com and the Progressive Voices Network. The final week leading up to the 2020 presidential election has begun with, for so many Americans, a sense of despair coupled with a bit of hope on the horizon. The despair comes with the Senate set to vote to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court Monday evening. After voting Thursday morning to move Barrett out of the Senate Judiciary Committee, the Senate held a special session over the weekend to accommodate the 30 hours of necessary debate. On Sunday, they voted 51 to 48 to end debate on Barrett's nomination. With Senators Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, the only two to break ranks with the Republicans and vote with the Democrats. Murkowski said over the weekend that although she's voting no on the procedural matters, She will vote yes to confirm Barrett in the final vote. Monday's vote is expected to be held at around 7 p.m. It'll take place roughly a month after Trump announced Barrett's nomination to replace the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. During Trump's presidency, the Republican Senate has confirmed 219 judicial nominees across the circuit. And with Barrett's confirmation, that'll include three to the Supreme Court. Among the burning questions looming Monday morning are, will Vice President Mike Pence come to the Capitol to preside over the vote? Two things. One, presiding over the Senate is a novelty, not a necessity. And two, he shouldn't because there's a COVID outbreak among his staff. Yep. Mark Short, Pence's chief of staff, has tested positive. And reports say that as many as Five Pence staffers have also tested positive, but his office hasn't released any more information. In fact, they tried to keep the entire outbreak secret. So much for transparency. By the way, the Senate is scheduled to go home until after the election, after it votes on the nomination. So much for any COVID relief bill being passed before Election Day. Oh, but before they leave... They've got a party, right? The White House is working on hosting an outdoor event for a ceremonial swearing-in of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court that could come late Monday night after her expected confirmation vote. Can you say, another super-spreader event? Unbelievable. Well, Election Day is one week from Tuesday, eight days out. And more people have already cast ballots in this year's presidential election than voted earlier absentee in the 2016 race entirely. As of Monday morning, we're closing in on 60 million ballots cast so far, passing the 58 million that the Associated Press logged as being cast through the mail or at in-person voting sites in 2016. But there's another big number floating around out there. The United States just hit its highest seven-day average since the pandemic began. More than 225,000 Americans have already died from the virus. And it's in that context that White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows on CNN's State of the Union told Jake Tapper, We're not going to control the pandemic. We are going to control the fact that we get uh, vaccines, therapeutics, and other mitigation. Why are we going to get control of the because, pandemic? Be, because it is a contagious virus, just like the flu. Yeah, but why not it's make contag- efforts to contain it? Well, we are making efforts to contain it. By and running and all over the country not wearing a mask? Jake, that's what the vice president is doing. Into the back. So they've completely given up. But... 
They've already announced that Mike Pence plans to continue traveling as scheduled despite an outbreak among at least three members of his staff, including Mark Short. And while all this is happening, Trump declared on Sunday that the coronavirus crisis is, quote, ending. Again, let me stress that's even though the single-day infection levels have just hit their highest point since the pandemic began. Yet he's still lying to his rally attendees. On Sunday in New Hampshire, he said that a potential coronavirus vaccine is, quote, going to be delivered fast. That will quickly end the pandemic. It's ending anyway, he said. We're rounding the turn, but the vaccine will get it down fast because we want normal life to resume. Oh, please. And just what will happen if Trump wins a second term? Axios reported on Sunday that he plans to fire FBI Director Christopher Wray. He's also expected to quickly replace CIA Director Gina Haspel and Defense Secretary Mark Esper, among others. And the president has also privately complained about his Roy Cohn, oh, Attorney General William Barr, though reportedly he has no formal plans to remove him. And finally, the State Department said Sunday that it has halted employee diversity and inclusion training programs. Reuters reporting that an internal State Department cable indicated that the programs had been paused after Trump last month issued an executive order ending the programs, which the White House has called divisive. That includes any teaching by any federal agencies that the United States is, quote, fundamentally racist or sexist opposite world indeed and that's just a bit of what's news for now i'm nicole sandler if you appreciate these reports and the nicole sandler show i hope you'll consider making a contribution my work is 100 percent listener supported and i can't do it without your help find out more at nicolesandler.com and please click on that donate button the leslie marshall show a true democracy in talk radio of for and by you the people Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C., and a political analyst for WGN Radio in Chicago and uh, WKX Radio in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, uh, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democratic candidates. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about my, me and my political polling company, or if you have any suggestions or comments or ideas for Deadline DC, the best way to reach me on Twitter is Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon. Welcome to all of you watching me on Twitter or Periscope. Now everyone can watch the show by going to periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. You can also watch Deadline DC on Facebook by using tinyurl.com forward slash BB Facebook Live. 
Today on Deadline DC, we've only got eight days to go until the presidential election. So we're going to discuss presidential politics. Sean Zella of Congressional Quarterly joins us in the first half hour. Then it's time for our provocative progressive political panel with Nick Guffman, the founder and CEO of Our Blue Future, and progressive political activist Mark J. Grimaldi. Our, uh, we start today with uh, Sean Keller, who is the uh, deputy managing editor of Congressional Quarterly Magazine. Welcome to the show, Sean. How are you doing today? It's great to be here, Brad. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. Uh, let's start. Uh, later today, uh, apparently around 7 p.m. Eastern time this evening, uh, the U.S. Senate is going to vote to confirm Amy Coney Barrett uh, as an associate justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, the uh, confirmation of uh, Justice Barrett uh, will give conservatives on the court a solid six to three uh, majority. And there is some concern that uh, the court will quickly act uh, to uh, nullify uh, such prominent uh, laws, uh, 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 rulings as Roe versus Wade and a very important law, the Affordable Care Act. That has raised a lot of discussion about what Joe Biden can do to uh, outmaneuver the court if he's elected president in eight days. And so for my first question is, do you think Joe Biden uh, will try to take any kind of action to mitigate the conservative uh, majority on the Supreme Court uh, there? He could uh, expand the court or try to do something else to mitigate the new conservative majority. Uh, what do you think will happen on that front? I think at first he's going to take his time and see what happens. Uh, I don't think Joe Biden wants to go out with both guns blazing right out of the bat. If the court does follow through and overrule some of those decisions that you mentioned, I think he'll have two options. One, he'll consider removing the legislative filibuster in the Senate which will allow the Senate to pass legislation, for example, to make abortion legal um, and to repass or fix the Affordable Care Act if the Supreme Court finds problems with it. Um, he could also add justices to the Supreme Court, um, but he's already said that he doesn't want to do that right out the gate anyway. He'd prefer to study the issue and create a commission that would look at it. So I think you know, he'll take a wait-and-see posture. He'll see what the Supreme Court does. He'll see what Republicans in the Senate do if they block legislation. Um, and his first move might be the legislative filibuster. Now, uh, let's say, wouldn't it, let's uh, say, you know, there's at least some speculation, and I'm not a Supreme Court expert, so I don't know, uh, that the, the court could uh, nullify the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and also uh, nullify the court's uh, ruling on abortion in Roe versus Wade. Uh, if Joe Biden was going to act, wouldn't it make sense for him to act before the Supreme Court does any of those two things? Otherwise, it would be sort of uh, letting uh, uh, closing the barn door after the horse escapes. Um, I mean, he, he certainly could. I mean, he could add a Supreme Court. He could remove the legislative filibuster right up, right away 
and use that new power um, to add justices to the Supreme Court. But I don't think he's going to do that. I mean, he's already distanced himself from those positions. He's a career senator. He values sort of the institution and the norms of the Senate and the norms of the Supreme Court. And I think his approach will be to wait. Um, either way, I mean, those, those changes you mentioned are unlikely to happen soon. The Supreme Court is just beginning, will just be beginning to hear the case regarding the Affordable Care Act. Most of the court watchers that I've listened to indicate that they think it's unlikely that the court will rule against the law in favor of the state attorneys general and the Trump administration that want it overturned. And so, you know, if they do rule against it, it would be the big surprise that would, I think, give him the political justification to move forward with some of those changes that I talked about a moment ago. Uh, let's say, uh, for the sake of argument, uh, the Democrats do recapture uh, capture a majority in the Senate, and they end up with 53 or 54 senators. Uh, do you think if uh, there were 53 Democratic senators and uh, the uh, Senate, uh, the new Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York, uh, decided to end the filibuster rule, uh, could he get? Uh, would all the Democrats uh, support the initiative, or as that even with a Democratic majority, is that going to be a tough sell for Schumer if he becomes Majority Leader uh, to kill the filibuster rule? Well, it depends on how many senators he has. If he has 53 or 54, it's going to be easier than if he has 50 or 51. But that said, I think taking the wait-and-see posture is what gives the Democrats the political maneuvering room to act in that area. If they proceed right out of the gate under the normal rules and are able to get legislation passed, if they're able to peel off Republican votes and, and get things done, if the Supreme Court does not proceed with overturning the Affordable Care Act this year, then the case is diminished. But if Republicans in the Senate were to block important legislation, if the Supreme Court were to rule against the Affordable Care Act, then the political momentum may shift towards those who want to eliminate the filibuster. And I suspect that's what will happen, that they'll wait and see what the Republicans do, what the court does, and if it, they have the political room to maneuver. Okay. Uh, let's move on. Let's uh, talk about uh, the presidential race. Uh, let's go back and actually review uh, last week's uh, debate. Uh, the uh, debate last Thursday night was Donald Trump's last chance uh, to directly confront uh, Joe Biden uh, was, and for most people felt the president performed better in the debate last week than he did in the first head-to-head -head matchup against Biden. Uh, do you think uh, the president's uh, performance in the debate last week was enough uh, to uh, take a chunk out of Joe Biden's lead and stop the momentum for Biden victory next week? The early polls coming out of the debate don't indicate that's the case. 
the polls still show a wide Biden lead. I think the reason for concern is that, again, that the polls could be wrong, especially in those battleground states where they are closer. They are. Um, where they are more reminiscent of where they were four years ago when Trump was facing Hillary Clinton. And that there might be shy Trump voters out there who aren't responsive to pollsters and aren't being counted in those numbers. So I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, I think Democrats are right to be worried about it and right to be proceeding with campaigning in the battlegrounds and pressing their case in the battlegrounds. I think the second debate is not a game changer, but it, the president performed better than it, certainly he did in the first, where his interruptions and in behavior, I think, were pretty widely seen as. Yeah, uh, I think most people feel that way. We're going to break now. Uh, we'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and our guest, uh, Sean Zella uh, from Congressional Quarterly Magazine. Uh, when we return, we'll be uh, with our Periscope TV listeners, viewers, we'll continue. Uh, we'll be back with the, our radio listeners in a couple of minutes. If you're worried your friend may be struggling, remember, you don't have to be there to be there. You can say how are you will get a fake tattoo. You can ask with an app if it works for you. You can write him a text or knit him a sweater. If you can't be together, you can write him a letter. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking. You could chat on the game, kick off your flip-flops. You can ask on your couch while you binge watch. However you do it, you gotta ask a friend. And if they don't share, you can ask again. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking. Reach out to a friend about their mental health. Learn how you can help at SeizeTheOpera.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and the Jed Foundation. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny, when I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1837. That was the day that Louisa Lee Schuyler was born in New York City. She was dedicated to the causes of public health and welfare, especially for the poor. This led her to help found the Bellevue Training School for Nurses in 1873. It was the first nurses' school in the United States based on the principles of Florence Nightingale, the English social reformer who established modern nursing practices. Louisa had become concerned with the conditions 
injections found at the city's public hospitals. Along with three other women, she toured Bellevue Hospital, finding poor lighting, dire sanitary conditions, and even a laundry that had run out of soap. The women wrote up a report about their findings. They made the case that a professionally trained nursing staff would help remedy the situation. The work of women during the Civil War had shown the potentially important role of nurses in providing medical care. The women's request was approved on a trial basis at Bellevue. Bellevue Hospital had opened its doors in 1736, making it the oldest continually running public hospital in the United States. The first class of nurses included just six women. Early training focused on improving sanitary conditions at the hospital and seeing to patient comfort. But instruction grew quickly to include basic medical training. By 1879, enrollment had grown to more than 60 trainees. Proud of their accomplishments, graduates wore a school pin. Designed by Tiffany and Company, the pin portrayed a crane in the middle of a wreath of poppies. The school operated for nearly a century until the training program was incorporated into Hunter College. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. This half hour is Sean Zella from Congressional Quarterly Magazine. Uh, you were uh, talking uh, about the Senate. Uh, Sean, what are the Democratic prospects for taking a majority in the Senate, in your opinion? They're pretty solid. Um, it looks like the smart money is on them in taking the Senate. Indeed, they have a number of good prospects from Susan Collins, defeating Susan Collins in Maine, Cory Gardner in Colorado, Tom Tillis in North Carolina. Um, just those three at the top of the list. Um, Joni Ernst in Iowa is also seems vulnerable. Steve Daines in Montana. So, and, and of course, Martha McSally in Arizona. Let's not forget her. So they have a lot of pickup opportunities to get those three seats that they'll need if Joe Biden wins the presidential election, they'll need four if he does not. But it seems likely that the two could go hand in hand, that if Trump loses the election, the Democrats will pick up this, the three seats they need. Yeah, uh, I should. Uh, we should also mention that besides the states we talked about, uh, polls show very close races uh, in at least three states that I know of uh, that uh, Trump decisively won in 2016. Uh, that will be Iowa, uh, Georgia, and Texas. Uh, now, I don't know if uh, Biden is going to end up winning any of those three states. He may. Uh, Georgia seems like a pretty decent bet. Uh, but uh, I think that shows the difficulty that the electoral map presents for Donald Trump since he's fighting for his life in three states, Iowa, uh, Texas uh, and uh, Georgia that he won decisively uh, in 2016. So um, we'll see. Oh, one thing I want to ask you about, since uh, you cover Congress so closely, uh, Nancy Pelosi announced uh, 
late last week that uh, she will run for another term as Speaker of the U.S. House uh, if she's reelected, which it looks like she will be, and the Democrats maintain their majority. In fact, some people think the Democrats might actually pick up uh, some House seats. Uh, would there be a move among uh, progressive Democrats from trying to deny uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, the speakership for another two years? No, I don't. No, definitely not. I, I think that uh, that she reached an agreement two years ago when she became speaker for the second time um, to stay for no more than two terms. So that would. If she re retains the speakership in the next Congress, she'll have served those two terms. And that was the deal that she reached with a group of uh, typically younger younger Democrats in the House that have been frustrated by the, the sort of feeling that there's been, not been a lot of change in the Democratic leadership. There are not a lot of young Democrats rising up in those ranks. The, the three top leaders are all in their 70s and 80s, Jim Clyburn, Steny Hoyer, and, and Speaker Pelosi herself. Um, but I think she's uh, the feeling in the caucus is that she's handled herself well, uh, especially this year, that she's held President Trump's feet to the fire when it comes to his handling of the virus. And if she leads the Democrats to uh, a continued majority, which seems likely, or, or certainly an expanded majority, there's, there's no chance that she will be removed from the speakership. The question will be, whether they stick to the agreement of one more term. And then it'll get real interesting in 2022 who the next speaker might be. Uh, who might emerge as a you know, Democratic speaker after, after Nancy Pelosi serving another term? Well, when you look down the list of, le of the current leaders, the, the, the two that stand out who are in leadership right now are Hakeem Jeffries, the New York Democrat, and Catherine Clark, the Massachusetts Democrat, both very ambitious, both the conference chair and the conference uh, vice chair. And I think they would be top contenders, but I'm sure there would be some dark horse candidates from outside of, um, of the current leadership. Now, uh, let's go back to the presidential race to close the half hour. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Donald Trump is campaigning very hard. He is, uh, you know, hitting a lot of battleground states, uh, even battleground states he shouldn't be probably having to campaign in, like Georgia. Um, but uh, it seems to me, you know, does, that, does Donald Trump have anything up his sleeve? Last week, uh, Rudy Giuliani tried to... Uh, uh, weigh in on the Hunter Biden story uh, by uh, leaking a story with some tapes of dubious origin um, about Hunter Biden's business dealings in the Ukraine. Uh, it, was that the Trump last gasp, or do you think they have anything? Uh, it seems to me they've got to do something in the next eight days to shake this thing up. Do you think they have anything in mind or anything planned? Well, they certainly might. I mean, no one saw the the Hunter Biden story coming from the from the New York Post, which ran it, and then the the Wall Street Journal op-ed page has has picked it up, and the conservative media has picked it up, trying to make the case that Hunter Biden's lobbying career um, implicates his father in some way, that his father was was gained benefit or helped Hunter Biden's clients, and. 
that certainly seems of a piece with the strategy that Trump had in 2016 to try to raise ethical questions about his opponent. Um, at this point, it doesn't seem like it's resonating, um, but it does seem like a last gasp. Okay. Uh, now let's uh, look at uh, closing arguments for Joe Biden. Uh, what do you expect Joe Biden will do in the next eight days to solidify his lead? Well, I think President Biden is sitting on a big cash advantage, and he's going to try to use that up. Um, from what I understand, the battlegrounds are just seeing a ton of Biden advertising. I think Joe Biden's uh, approach has been to demonstrate through his campaign a respect for the uh, virus and the danger that it poses to Americans right now. And I think a majority of Americans, the polls indicate, appreciate that. He's run as a return to normalcy candidate as a moderate Democrat, as someone who will seek to work across the aisle. And I think that's, uh, I think his campaign thinks that's working. Uh, yep, well, uh, we'll find out uh, soon. Uh, one last uh, question. Uh, do you expect, uh, what about, uh, it seems to me one of the things that's coming up here is that in the late stages, this thing that the pandemic is coming back uh, to bite the president on the Trump on the you know butt. Uh, you know, Mike Pence. Two of Mike Pence's aides have tested positive. Uh, his chief, Mark uh, Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, yesterday seemed to raise, raise the right, white flag in terms of trying to fight the pandemic. Uh, that, that to me, has got to be a real problem for the Trump campaign going into the stretch run here. Yeah, it seems to be killer for him um, that he, the, the consensus is that he has not managed the virus well, that he's had an overly optimistic view of its course, and now it's hit him and his vice president, and it's it certainly is not, uh, not helping. That's it for uh, this segment of Deadline DC. I uh, want to thank our guest, Sean Zella from Congressional Quarterly, for joining us and talking about the presidential race. Deadline DC with Brad Bannon will be back after these messages. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? babies made what does this thing do kids are curious about everything including guns talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step but you can do more always keep your guns locked unloaded and stored separately from ammunition storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire including unintentional shootings for more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe visit endfamilyfire.org that's endfamilyfire.org what do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Mm -mm. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. 
Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. <sighs> Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Shortly after taking office, Trump puffed himself up in full Trumpian pomposity to proclaim, we will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. Well, nothing else unless you count a record-shattering number of more than 20,000 documented lies he's uttered in only three and a half years. He's now lying that a tsunami of voter fraud is about to hit our land and deny him re-election. Of course, as every investigation has concluded, the only widespread voter fraud in our country is the GOP fraud that voter fraud is rampant. But what's really at work here is that the Donald is in a cold panic about losing. So his only hope is to do two things. First, use the fraud bugaboo as an excuse to restrict voting in precincts that vote for Democrats. And second, delegitimize a Democratic win in advance by creating the myth that his loss could only be caused by hordes of illegal voters. Thus, he and his obsequious political party are actually spending untold millions of dollars in a disgraceful effort to try to keep American voters from casting ballots. Their tactics are worthy of the sleaziest of tin-pot dictators from the banana republics of old. For example, they've simply closed the neighborhood voting places in thousands of Democratic areas, and they've monkeyed with our nation's postal service in a crude effort to restrict mail-in voting. Then, William Barr, Trump's pathetic toady of an attorney general, even tried to boost the trickster's chances by ludicrously suggesting it might not be illegal for his backers to vote twice. This is Jim Hightower saying, So now, after promising he'd tell us nothing but the truth, Trump declared this year that he's entitled to re-election because, unlike so many who came before me, I keep my promises. Obviously, that's his fattest lie yet. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. In this half hour, uh, we will do our provocative progressive political panel. But before that, uh, let me say a few words. The clock is ticking and Donald Trump is taking a licking. The president's persistent problem is the pandemic plague. He gets uh, bad marks for fighting the COVID-19 outbreak in national and battleground state polls. Trump downplayed the severity of the COVID in last week's presidential debate and said that the U.S. is turning the corner and recovering from the outbreak. The president's callous take on the pandemic was essentially, don't worry uh, about the pandemic. Be happy you're still alive, even though 200,000 of your friends and family have died. After dismissing the, the severity of the pandemic Thursday night, the president's fantasy collided re reality the next day when the Center for D Disease Control reported a record high in new coronavirus cases. Saturday, the White House announced that Vice President Mike Pence's chief of staff 
and his senior political advisor tested positive for COVID. Then on Sunday, the president's own chief of staff, Mark Meadows, contradicted the president's debate optimism when he told CNN's Jake Tapper that we're not going to control the pandemic. If that isn't rolling up, the, the frilling, uh, frilling the white flag, I don't know what is. The administration's failure to keep its own house clear of COVID further undermines the president's credibility in the fight against the plague. Essentially, especially when the vice president is chairman of the White House task force responsible for fighting the COVID. The failure of the president and the vice president to keep their own houses in order does nothing to inspire public confidence that his administration could ever win the war against COVID. Now it's time for our provocative progressive political panel. Our guest today on the panel is Nick Guthman, the founder of Our Blue Future, which organizes young Americans to be politically active. Nick's Twitter handle is Nick uh, Guthman. That's G U T H M A N. Nick Guthman. Joining Nick on the panel is progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. Mark has worked on get-out-the-vote operations for several Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. Mark is also involved in campaign finance reform and efforts to and efforts for cancer research. His Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. That's G-R-I-M-A-L-D-I. Okay, let's start with the uh, presidential race. Uh, Nick. Uh, there in the national polls, uh, Joe Biden, I think the real clear politics average I checked yesterday, he had an eight point lead in the national surveys. Uh, Joe Biden seems to lead uh, in the Great Lakes battleground states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, and Wisconsin. Uh, Joe Biden is closely is in the close races with the president in the Sun Belt battleground states of Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida. Joe Biden is even competitive in three states uh, that Donald Trump decisively won in 2016. Those would be Iowa, uh, Georgia, and Texas. Uh, what's your take on the state of the presidential race, Nick? Well, thank you for having me, Brian, and good to see you, Mark. Um, over 62 million Americans, as of today, have made their voices heard as voters in our democracy. 62 million. Setting a record for early vote numbers, and that's no mistake. That is because of the uh, hard work and dedication of so many grassroots organizations and mobilization to get people prepared to vote safely in this pandemic. Over 62 million people have already casted their ballot. Overwhelmingly, uh, the Democrats have, have been able to see that uh, turnout be in our favor. Um, it is very, very close in some states in terms of the return, um, whether Democrats have returned their ballots, whether Republicans have, uh, and, and things like that. And no matter what, though, what the polls are saying and what these encouraging numbers tell us, the truth of the matter is these next eight days are crucial. And us here at Blue Future, we are focused, laser focused on making sure we do everything we can to call as many of these voters who have received absentee ballots, make sure they know how to fill it out, make sure they're sending it back on time, 
uh, dropping it off at the safe drop boxes where appropriate, um, and making sure that everyone is talking to their friends, talking to their family, especially folks in those key battleground states you mentioned, Brad, to make sure that we get out the vote and not only get out the vote, but be ready to demand that every single vote is counted and that everyone in our country counts, no exceptions. Uh, Mark, uh, you've been uh, texting uh, potential voters in battleground states. So how's that going? Okay, uh, let me get back to Nick. Uh, Nick, uh, our blue future uh, is charged with uh, revving up uh, young voters uh, to vote this year. Now, uh, in 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton young won the support of young voters. Was not very good. Uh, are young voters going to turn out in force for Joe Biden this year? Yes, absolutely yes. And again, as I was saying, the early vote numbers are are encouraging, uh, especially in some of these states in Texas, in Florida, in North Carolina, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, where uh, more young people have voted early than ever before, setting records day after day uh, for the early vote numbers. But uh, the message is the same. No matter what, we have to push and push hard these next couple of days and leave it all in the field, organized for every hour of every day, every minute of every hour, to say that in America, we all count, to say that in America, our democracy is sacred and our vote, as our uh, you know, hero John Lewis said, our vote is precious and we have to exercise our right to vote. And young people understand that because we have so much at stake. The whole country has so much at stake. Our democracy is at stake. But us as young voters, we have the most at stake as we will be dealing with the consequences of this election for many, many years to come. That includes this you know, packing of the court by the Republican Party and Amy Coney Barrett. It includes climate justice and addressing the climate crisis. And so we have so much at stake in this election, and we are organizing day in and day out. And I do believe that when all is said and done, uh, we will see that young voters were a key voting bloc helping to deliver our democracy for the people of the United States. Um, I should note uh, for our radio listeners that Nick is wearing his uh, Dodgers cap. Uh, the Dodgers, by the way, World Series game, game five last week. Uh, and so they're heading the series uh, three to two. Uh, Nick, let me ask. a Democratic House and a Democratic Congress, uh, then the Supreme Court votes uh, to uh, nullify uh, the Supreme standard on abortion, which is the, the Roe versus Wade decision. It's, a, it's an important question to be asking. And uh, if, if we do our jobs right over the next eight days, 
the job that young people and other grassroots progressive organizers have been doing for the last four years and well before that to mobilize our communities and turn out to vote in record numbers. If we do our job and we win the Senate, we win the White House, it will be on all of us to uphold and protect our democracy. And currently, this administration not only is rushing through a Supreme Court nominee while they have the HEROES Act, an important, impactful piece of legislation that passed the House to provide relief to millions of Americans, to state and local governments, to teachers, um, and to, to make sure that we can get by this and get through this pandemic. That's just sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk as we speak. And yet they're going to rush through the Supreme Court nominee while over 62 million Americans have already cast their vote. It's absolutely ridiculous. We talk about court packing. They keep asking Joe Biden and the Democrats about court packing. Court packing, why don't they take a mirror and look at themselves in that mirror? Who's packing the court now? It's the Republican Party. And so young people are, are going to be able to stand up and ready and prepared to stand up to protect our democracy and make sure that the fundamental institutions and checks and balances and our nonpartisan courts Right, our balanced court system. Okay, uh, we're going to go to break now for our audio for our radio listeners. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes after these messages. For folks watching us on uh, Facebook Live and Periscope TV, we'll be back back right away with the provocative progressive political panel. America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. He was the heart of your family, and he taught you our history. He helped you fix your first flat. He was the best backyard DJ around, and every time he'd tell a story, he'd own the room. But now more than ever, he may feel alone. Today, older adults and their loved ones are struggling to connect in a time when connection has never been more important. But there is something we can do. Embrace our older loved ones through StoryCorps Connect. With StoryCorps Connect, you can honor seniors remotely with an interview about their life. Every interview will be archived at the Library of Congress, becoming part of American history, so that years from now, future generations can listen in. All right, Grandpa, what's one piece of advice you have for me? Just three words, sweetheart. Live with courage. The man that had the best stories still has plenty of stories to tell. So connect virtually and share the conversation of a lifetime at storycorpconnect.org AARP. Connect, honor, share. StoryCorps Connect. A message from AARP, StoryCorps, and the Ad Council. Uh, it's, an, it's an important question, and it is truly spectacular to see these early... Welcome to Code Whack, your podcast on America's broken healthcare system and how Medicare for All could help. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. 
Today, we'll continue our discussion about changes being made to the SAG-AFTRA health plan. Last time, we spoke to David L. Lander, the actor who played Squiggy on Laverne and Shirley, and his wife, Kathy Fields Lander. They're retired actors and longtime SAG-AFTRA members, bracing themselves for dramatic changes to their health plan. This is worrisome because David Lander really needs good health coverage. He's had multiple sclerosis for 37 years. Welcome to Code Whack, Kathy. So how did you first get involved in being an advocate for Medicare for All? Was it because of David's sickness and you scrambling to get him coverage? I mean, yeah. I've been scrambling since we were in our, we were 40 years old when this all started. So I had a long time before Medicare. And then I got on Medicare and I went, oh, whew, that's better. That was pretty good and comfortable with Screen Actors Guild taking, you know, supporting the 20% and everything like that. And it was bad enough that he was not well, but at least I didn't have to worry nights about how he was going to get taken care of. And now that's changed. And I'm right back at 73 years old, where I was when I was 40 years old, trying to figure out what to do and stay ahead of the game. And this time I have no answers. So the thing is, and the reason why I'm so involved and I've always been involved besides my personal issues, is that it's for everybody. If they drop Medicare and Obamacare, we have millions of people who are not going to be taken care of in this country. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. You can also listen to our episodes at www.heal-ca.org. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time. to Nick Gutman, uh, founder and executive director of RView Future, which works uh, with young voters to motivate them to participate uh, in the process. Uh, Nick, if uh, Joe Biden wins and the Democrats have majority uh, of control, uh, majority uh, control of the U.S. Senate, and both are possibilities, I don't think either is a dumb deal. Things can change a lot in eight days. But let's say things go to the Democratic Party's way, and we do have a Democratic president and Democratic Senate, and of course we'll have a Democratic House. We might even have a bigger House majority than we have now. Uh, first of all, uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Joe Biden to move quickly to solve a lot of problems at the same time. Uh, do you think the Democrats uh, in the Senate uh, will vote uh, to uh, eliminate the full filibuster rule, which will give the uh, new Democratic majority, if it exists, the opportunity to pass legislation with 51 votes instead of just uh, uh, instead of hoping to get up to 60 to break up the filibuster? Uh Thank you for the question, Brad. I should also say I'm now the co-executive director. Blue Future has been expanding in this most important election year. We have a co-director, Morgan Starr, who's just invaluable to our team. But to your question uh, about what Democrats will do, my, my guess is as good as yours. But here's what I do know the Democrats will do. The Democrats will pass meaningful legislation. We'll talk about the issues that Americans are facing uh, regarded, 
regarding the economy, regarding healthcare, making sure more people have access to healthcare, not less, making sure we do something about the environment and start to take it seriously before it's too late to address the climate crisis, make sure we pass legislation like the justice
all of your family, you know, people on Facebook, on social media, on other platforms, and make sure that people go out as voters and show that in America, we're going to deliver our democracy and elect and inaugurate and swear in a new government of and by and for us. Okay, uh, Nick, what do you think uh, Joe Biden should say uh, to uh, seal the deal in the next eight days? I think he's, he's said it. I mean, he has shown who he is, his character. As he said in the debate, America knows me, I know America, and America knows Trump and who he is. You know, again, our character is on the ballot and, and in our national leadership, it's time for change. It is time for change. It's time to restore people's faith in the institution of democracy, while Donald Trump is literally running an all-out assault and a campaign against democracy itself. He's not running against Joe Biden. He's running against democracy. He's running against our fundamental right to vote. And so Joe Biden needs to make that case a little bit stronger. The reason it's so and the reason all this voter suppression is happening is because it's a strategy, because Donald Trump knows Donald Trump and the Republican Party, Mitch McConnell and all the rest know that if everyone has a right to vote, if everyone makes their vote heard, they have no chance at all. So we got to get out there and be voters all together from small towns to big cities, black, white, native newcomer. We're going to go out in record numbers and deliver our democracy. Okay, uh, that's it today for Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, but uh, remember, we'll be back uh, next Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern time for our Election Eve special, which should be uh, pretty interesting as we uh, talk about the last few hours of the presidential race next week. I want to thank our guest, uh, Sean Zella from Congressional Quarterly Magazine, and Nick Guthman of Our Blue Future. Uh, I want to thank our producer, uh, Mark Grimaldi. Uh, I'm here Mondays at 3 p.m. Uh, if the Lord is willing, the creek don't rise, and if Donald Trump doesn't declare martial law. This is Brad Bannon. Stay strong, stay safe, and don't drink the Clorox or the Kool-Aid. It didn't help the president, uh, and it won't help you either. And most important, remember, vote early, but don't vote often. That can get you into serious legal trouble. Anyway, we'll be back with our special Election Eve special next Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, so make sure you vote if you can early and encourage your friends to vote early and on Election Day. Okay, thanks, Nick. Thank you, Brad. This is what the Huron River sounds like. What you can't hear are toxic chemicals like PFAS, that have contaminated the water. Toxic PFAS are linked to cancer and brain damage in children. But State Representative Ryan Berman cut more than $21 million from the state's contaminated site cleanup fund. Ryan Berman's record is toxic. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate. This is what the Huron River sounds like. What you can't hear are toxic chemicals like PFAS that have contaminated the water. Toxic PFAS are linked to cancer and brain damage in children. But State Representative Ryan Berman cut more than $21 million from the state's contaminated site cleanup fund. Ryan Berman's record is toxic. 
Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC. Not authorized by any candidate.